Rachel Ann Goodman. And we want to thank our intern, Tommy Martin, who can't be here today because of a cold. Coming up this hour, an interview with engineers from Oak Bio, a company which turns carbon harvested from the atmosphere into products like fuel, plastics, and even animal feed using, of all things, microbes. So that's going to be an interesting interview coming up in just a few moments with the inventors of this new technology using microbes to chomp on carbon. If you want to ask our guests a question, you can write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. You can chime into the conversation that way and we will get your comments right away. As we mentioned, we are streaming live on Facebook. Howdy, howdy. You can see my co-host getting into position there on camera. Nothing like beaming in from outer space. Um, Welcome, Joe. Hey, Rachel and everybody. Uh, my dad used to call me the original crisis kid. We're definitely in uh, tough times here, but uh, good to be on and uh, loaded for bear. <laughs> what they say is what really matters is if you show up, and you did, um, just in time. So in this show, as you might have heard, we will be covering uh, cutting-edge science that's responding to the really big challenges of our day, like climate chaos, clean energy innovations, and new discoveries and phenomena that are fun to contemplate, like micro-munching on carbon and other solutions to big problems. We'll have some earth and sky watching ideas, as well as a science quiz of the week and the answer to last week's quiz, plus news, all that and more coming up on Planet Watch. And once again, our email is radioplanetwatch.com at gmail.com. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. My co-host is Joe Jordan. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Hi, and uh, of course we miss Tommy, our Cabrillo College intern. Uh, he's under the weather, the beautiful weather we have here in Santa Cruz right now. And uh, But, Tommy, get well, and make sure you go to class tomorrow. <laughs> yes, your mom says so. All right, so a couple of news items to kick off the show. Forbes magazine reports that in the United States, more people were employed in solar power last year than in coal, gas, and oil, G- oil energy fields combined. According to a new report from the U.S. Department of Energy, solar power employed 43% of the electric power generation sector's workforce last year, while fossil fuels combined accounted for just 22%. Just under 374,000 people were employed in solar energy, according to the report, and 73,615 new jobs were created in just last year alone. That's compared with 100. 87,000 jobs in the combined gas, coal, and oil power generation industry, and only 24,650 jobs added in that industry. So, interesting growth in the private sector driving um, not necessarily policy or beliefs, but actual economies of scale, economies of people wanting solar for lots of reasons, including the environment and also their power bill driving that story. That's interesting, good, important stuff. Um, should I do the next one? Sure. Okay. I, you know what? I have to confess, I haven't even read this yet, but I trust Rachel's excellent journalism. So, hey, she's titling it, uh, Rangers Go Rogue. When faced with a gag order on their federal tax-funded agency communicating to the outside world, someone in the National Park Service took to Twitter and created an alternative Twitter account. The rogue messages sent... 
Facts about climate change. Within hours, the account had hundreds of thousands of followers. Cool. It is not known if the person running the account was a park employee or ex-employee, but their truly subversive messages went like this. On January 24th, the official Badlands, you know, South Dakota feed, posted, Today, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is higher than at any time in the last 650,000 years. That's over half a million years, which is true, by the way. Uh, pound climate, that's what they go by. Come, let's see here. Coming as the Trump administration removed references to climate change from the White House website and froze the EPA's, Environmental Protection Agency's, funding for research. The freeze was lifted this past Friday. This bare factual treat rang of defiance. By the way, I will just liken it to the book burning in Germany. The big book burnings in Germany just prior to World War II. That's what's going on here, folks. Shortly afterward, it was taken down, that tweet. Even an alternative account for the Herbert Hoover National Historic Site in West Branch, Iowa, has been reminding followers of Hoover's warning that immediately upon attaining power, each dictator has suppressed all free speech except his own. <laughs> this according to Atlantic Magazine. Okay, take it away with the next one, Rachel. Uh, we are exercising our free speech today yes. very happily thanks Yay, to free speech. this radio station. According to Science News, shifting rainfall patterns may send 10 to 40% more water filled with dissolved bits of organic debris into our coastal waters. And that, I assume, is not just California, but... Uh, around the globe. This material can cloud the water, disrupting marine ecosystems by shifting the balance of microbes at the bottom of the food chain. Microscopic grazers, known as zooplankton, could witness double methylmercury concentrations due to extra rainfall in certain parts of the climate, like uh, we have seen this winter in California. So just a little heads up. Uh, there's more methylmercury in the ocean surface since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I don't have anything else. Okay, here. well, a couple more quick news bits before we move on to our next guest, our first guest and our only guest today. <laughs> NPR reports that new eDNA technology is starting to revolutionize how we protect native animals and ensure invasive species don't take hold. Biologist Sean Clemens, who works for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, says his state doesn't have the resources to fully monitor endangered species, look for invasive plants, or check in on all the other native species, potentially including animals like river otters, beavers, and bats. But with eDNA, doing all of this could get much cheaper and easier. Clemens explains that by taking a water sample, you can tell somewhere in the basin above you there was this range of species and something about their relative abundance. Technology is already proving its worth uh, with bull trout monitoring in the West for keeping track of invasive Asian carp. So interesting, uh, wonderful advances in just monitoring endangered species, which we hope will continue, um, even though funding for the moment is frozen for that activity. And Rachel, if you would... Send me that news item after the show today, would you? <laughs> I hadn't seen that one yet, but it's oh, sure. uh, obviously pretty important. And then finally, this is maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, but not really. Um, you know, we hear a lot of things about people putting their head in the sand and that they should take it out. So here's a short <laughs> bit about that. Head is, head, our heads are in the sands of Saudi Arabia <laughs> on the oil front. Looking around. <laughs> well, you know, lately people have been saying they're overwhelmed by the day's news and just want to act like an ostrich and bury their heads in the sand. And if that's where you find your head these days, or maybe 
maybe somewhere else a little darker. Um, <laughs> let's answer the question from a science angle. Do ostriches really bury their heads in the sand? What do you think? I kind of thought they did. But if you stuck your head in like Twin Lakes Beach right now, how would that go for you? Well, As a mammal, air-breathing mammal, like what would happen? I, I don't know. I'd definitely have to take a shower afterwards, but yeah, I might suffocate, I suppose. Yeah, and that would happen to ostrich. And the reason people thought they stuck their heads in the sand is they actually dug holes in the ground for their eggs, but they had a hole, not sand. So um, <laughs> it turns out, no, they would suffocate. Um, but they can run really fast, 43 miles per hour, which may be a lesson for us instead of sticking our heads in the sand. We might want to practice fleeing. Um <laughs> Or the other thing they can do really well, which we might want to also emulate, is they kick really hard. They kick so back. two thousand pounds per square inch is an ostrich's kapow. So um, maybe if you're feeling threatened, you might want to emulate one of those two ostrich-like qualities. That's wow. our news roundup for the morning, the afternoon, or evening, wherever you are <laughs> listening. So I thought those were some interesting facts. Excellent. Excellent. And I believe we have our first guest on the line. Let me just uh, double check. How yeah, this is up. our third show, and this is going to be the first time where we didn't have a guest live in the studio. But it uh, looks like... Uh, yeah, they're I've got to give a shout-out to our engineer, Jason, back there. He He's signaling that we... We're live with our guest, I believe. We are, and Correct. I'm just, you know, being my usual self here, I'm bringing them up on the phone line number one. Um, let's see if they're there. Hello, hello. Is this Merck? Hello, uh, Rachel and Joe. Can you hear me? Oh, absolutely. Don't you love modern technology? <laughs> I guess you do because you are an engineer and inventor. Hi, Merck. Nice to meet you. Let me if properly introduce well, you that to was <laughs> So, Mark Martinelli so, is VP of Strategy and Partnerships at Oak Bio Inc., and a company which is exploring and actually manufacturing products out of carbon that somehow are created by microbes. So we're going to hear more about that in a That's moment. It's carbon that they're getting out of the atmosphere, by the way, which is the big motivator for this whole thing. I mean, you know, we're adding too much carbon right. to the atmosphere, but we need to not only stop emitting carbon, just like period, but we need to start doing negative emissions. We start need to start taking it out of the atmosphere seriously in a big way. Nobody, I was just standing around talking to somebody after a recent event saying, nobody knows how to do this yet economically. And this fellow next to me says, well, actually we do. And I said, who are you? And then I looked at his name tag and it was Merck Martinelli, who I met years and years ago. Uh, he used to be on the board of directors, maybe still is, of the Santa Cruz uh, Natural History Museum. And uh, he also was involved uh, heavily in the solar industry with a company called Nano Solar, which I think no longer exists. I'm not sure if that's Merck's fault, but um, Merck, maybe yeah. you can update us on that. And are we also joined by Brian Sefton? Is he also uh, with that's him? right. Hi, so Brian is yep. um, the oh, CEO of the company Oak Bio and a biochemist and environmental scientist who has led uh, several other companies. So let's just start out with a, one of those good expository questions of what is this idea of yours? What are you going to, how are you going to do this idea of turning carbon? First of all, how do you suck it out of the environment? And then what do you do with it? And also, could you explain the name Oak Bio, O A K? B-I-O Only one com. question at a time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they can, you can get to that. Yeah, but one. just <laughs> put that away. In the, yeah. All right. Brian, do you want to take the first question? Sure, no problem. So w what Oak Bio does is we, we use uh, some very, very interesting types of microbes that can absorb carbon dioxide from flue gas streams. Um, 
And with the addition of hydrogen that can be produced with clean energy, uh, capture that CO2 and convert it into products. And those products that we've enabled so far are bioplastics, N-butanol, uh, which is a fuel and a chemical feedstock, and animal feed. And so those are the three products we make from uh, raw, uh, untreated industrial flue gas. Hey, Brian, uh, hang on just a second. When you said flue gas, unless it's printed out, F-L-U-E, and of course there is a lot of influenza running around right now, so people may wonder what flue gas is, but we're talking smokestacks, right? That's right. From power plants, that, generally speaking? Uh, yeah. Not not, not really power plants, you know, uh, but... Uh, you know, and there's a there's a complicated explanation as to why we don't do it from power plants. It's not that we can't. It's just that you know when you when you capture CO two, you have to add energy, and power plants' primary uh, purpose is to generate energy. So you know, we we look at the future in terms of power plant emissions as you know, hopefully, power plant emissions will go away, and you know, various other types of industrial emissions will occur. Uh, hopefully. You know, fossil fuel burning power plants will be replaced with renewable energy. But uh, what we'll we'll work mostly with uh, are gases from, for example, cement plants. And in fact, we developed our initial technology uh, in a uh, using using flue gas from the Lehigh cement plant in Cupertino, which uh, some of you may be familiar with. Uh, and we use their flue gas to develop the flue gas resistant strain of microbes. And then we'll uh, you know, enable that for several several applications, uh, as I said before, in terms of making several different products. So let me just um, back up a little. So these microbes, normally normally microbes would die in, in the presence of this material, but you have engineered them somehow to be resistant. And then um, what did they, what's the, maybe you can't tell me because it's proprietary, but what's the action? How do they turn it from something that we don't want <laughs> into something you say animal feed, which just stretches the mind it reminds me of soy like green but not quite uh sorry <laughs> so so just so we understand uh <laughs> the microbes naturally take up co2 we through natural selection it's a not you know uh, essentially this part of our work was non-gmo mm-hmm. uh so we didn't uh, uh engineer them in that sense just just so uh people can be clear but essentially you know everyone's familiar with how green plants take sunlight energy and use that to capture CO2 and make, uh, you know, grow and, and, and produce the chemicals that are in green plants. So our process is kind of like that, and in fact uses the same uh, carbon capturing enzyme that plants use, which we call Rubisco. And uh, instead of sunlight, we use uh, energy from hydrogen. So this mix of hydrogen and CO2 goes into bioreactors with our microbes, and uh, the microbes absorb the CO2 and hydrogen and produce the desired products. How did you get so many different products out of one process? Like you are, have fuel, maybe you could describe the four things you're looking to make or that you already have made and how um, you get it out from one thing to another. Could you walk us through like from A to B without being super technical because some people might get lost like me. Uh, <laughs> Joe might follow you. But so you take CO2, you capture it, or it's already being captured, and then add hydrogen, and then what happens in this bioreactor? The microbes go to work on it? The microbes absorb the CO2 and the hydrogen, and it, it's a natural product that the bioplastic is a natural product that the microbes make. 
We did engineer microbes to produce N-butanol. That's another product. And N-butanol is a, it's a, you know, a, a biofuel with an octane rating of 87. It's a, a direct replacement for gasoline. Hmm. But it's also a chemical feedstock that's used in making acrylics. Uh, in terms of uh, animal feed, that's, again, just a natural product where the microbes grow, and the microbes have certain you know, nutritious uh, characteristics that we'll work with against, in each of these products, slightly different strains of microbes uh, that we use. And so it's a ta- tailored for each product, you could say. And uh, you know, that, that, that's the way it works. So it's very much like, a, like I was saying in the beginning, like how green plants absorb sunlight and CO2. The difference here being, of course, the CO2 is in very vast quantities, and it's uh, not as clean as uh, the CO2 in our atmosphere. So it's in in industrial emissions. Let me just interject a couple things here for the benefit of our dear listeners. Uh, uh, One of the the kinds of animal feed that I know you... uh, have mentioned on your website, oakbio.com, as well as in some stuff you sent to Rachel and me, uh, is fish food. Uh, people like that. You know, when I hear the words animal food, I immediately think, oh, I don't know, uh, feedlot cattle or something, you know, eating brains of other cattle. But anyway, hey, fish <laughs> food. We can all relate to fish food. You know, we have aquariums. and But the other thing is N-butanol. Listeners might think that that's spelled E-N-B-U-T, blah, 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 but it's actually the little letter N hyphen, like a dash, butanol. And I don't think we need to go into the chemistry of why they call it N-butanol, but that's what it is. And it's a high-quality fuel. And, of course, the first reaction I had when Merck told me about this that evening I was describing a minute ago was, okay, you you produce automotive fuel, let's say. You burn it. What does that put into the atmosphere? Carbon, carbon dioxide. I said, is there a net negative? And he said, yeah, it's actually way net negative. You withdraw a whole lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. Then if you're uh, concentrating on this particular N-butanol or other automotive fuel product, yeah, you emit some back into the atmosphere, but it's way less than what you took out. And that is good, right? Yeah, absolutely. That That is that is the kind of underpinnings of, of, of a lot of what we do at Oak Bio. And definitely the, you know, carbon life cycle is uh, extremely, uh, you know, in our process is, is a very uh, net carbon negative uh, uh, technology. So you also are adding energy to the process, but that's not more energy than you'd get out of the, the ethanol, I mean, uh, the N-butanol? Uh, yeah, we're adding, you know, again, when you do a life cycle analysis, and you have, you have to look at it and say, well, you're displacing a petrochemical product, right? So uh, when, if one was using this for a fuel, the N-butanol, and as I, as I point out, it's also used as a chemical feedstock to make acrylics and other, uh, other products that are normally made from petrochemicals. And, uh, you know, so when you, when you look at the, uh, say, life cycle analysis of a gallon of gas, you have to think of all the refining and all the things that go into producing that gasoline from petrochemicals. There's a lot of CO2 release and greenhouse gas release during that part of the process. And then when it's combusted, it contributes net uh, carbon to the air that was originally in the form of uh, you know fossil uh, uh, carbon. Right. In our case... We start out with capturing carbon that you know would have been emitted into the atmosphere, 
and we add some energy to it, there's some carbon footprint associated with that. And then if, if one was using it for fuel, it would be combusted. But when you add those, that total carbon uh, footprint up and you compare it to the carbon footprint of the equivalent amount of gasoline, and you know, e- even when you account for the energy and everything else, uh, you know, differences between the energy of, say, a gallon of butanol versus a gallon of, of gasoline, uh, you come up with a big net carbon negative using our process in comparison. Great. If you uh, just uh, joined us, somebody... we're listening to um, Brian Sefton from Oak Bio. Correct. He's the CEO, and we're also listening to Mark Martinelli, two principals in a brand new company that is making bioplastics and aquafeed out of carbon using microbes. And my name is Rachel Ann Goodman here on Planet Watch with Joe Jordan, my co-host. And Joe, you had a question. Yeah, I got a question. Um, uh, what Rachel was just referring to is, as part of your process, is uh, you know needing energy. And uh, that a lot of that goes into the making of the hydrogen, which is part of your process. Now, hydrogen is something which is kind of exciting to a lot of folks. Um, I don't know, 15 years ago, I started talking a lot about hydrogen and fuel cells, you know, and if you consume hydrogen quietly, cleanly, uh, you know, with no noise, pollution, or moving parts in, in these devices called fuel cells, which by that time were mainly only used in the space program, uh, that, hey, that could be a big, you know, hydrogen is the best way to bottle and transport solar energy, for instance. Well, a lot of people have since then, you know, been wondering, well, you know, how are you going to get your hydrogen? How do you, do you electrolyze water? And if you do, well, how do you get your electricity? Is it from, you know, big centralized coal plants or nuclear plants or well, hey, there are other ways to get electricity to electrolyze water, and actually there are way better ways now to even to make hydrogen without having to electrolyze water, which is a very energy-intensive process. I'm not sure if you guys are going to be electrolyzing water to get hydrogen, but, you know, if you're using the sun, <laughs> that is uh, a good aspect of it. But a lot of people are still very skeptical about hydrogen. I say the jury is out. I say I would bet dollars to donuts it is going to be a part of the picture. Who knows how big a part, but... Is that um, a question? Well, the question <laughs> is, yeah, is it hydrogen? Or are you going to make it by solar electrolysis or some other more advanced process or, or, or what? <laughs> well, you know, we, we take advantage. You know, one, one of our advantages in this company is that we don't, uh, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of work has gone into technology to make hydrogen. So billions of dollars have been spent, you know, on, on you know, new, new technology to produce hydrogen. You're absolutely right. There are new methods to make hydrogen. And in fact, we practice some of those ourselves, uh, making hydrogen biologically, you know, so-called biohydrogen, etc. Um, but the electrolysis of water using, you know, uh, using green power is you know, for large-scale hydrogen production is the most promising and the greenest, uh, uh, you know, type of hydrogen one can one can produce. Uh, biohydrogen is very green also, I should say, but really in terms of large-scale hydrogen production, uh, electrolysis of water is, is the, probably the most desirable and mature technology. We use electrolysis of, of water to produce hydrogen in our lab and, and also in our, you know, our field work that was done at uh, cement plants and other places, uh, we, we, we use uh, hydrogen electrolysis to produce the, uh, the electrolysis water to make the hydrogen. 
Uh, we had a cement plant here in Santa Cruz County for a long, long time. It shuttered uh, maybe about 10 years ago in Davenport. Um, so we could have used this technology to scrub some of that out of the environment uh, if we were still in business, but it's not. Um, I did have another couple questions for you about, you know, uh, what's your timeline? Are you up and running with this stuff or are you in the middle of testing it? And Excuse me. Could we remind our listeners uh, <clears throat> to get a hold of us at the email address? Radio Planet Watch, all one word, at gmail.com. That's Radio Planet Watch, 16 letters, at gmail.com. We've got one message in so far, and I think uh, if anybody's listening out there, you can reach us that way, and I'm checking it, and I got one nice one. But uh, You can also reach us on our Facebook page, which is Planet Watch Radio, all different words, on Facebook, and we are streaming live. <laughs> if you want to see some links to Oak Bio and see our lovely haircuts... I don't know. I don't see. I don't see any cameras pointed my way. <laughs> there oh, wait, is there one. it is. You are. <laughs> Whoa, there. <laughs> oh, and to answer your question about where we're at as a company, mm -hmm. uh, we're currently raising money so that we can do a pilot scale uh, demonstration of our uh, technology. So we're our technology is pretty developed right now, and we're scaling it up. We just scaled it up in the lab. Uh, we've proven it on a number of real flue gas streams from coal-fired and uh, petroleum coke-fired cement plants, also from oil refinery waste. And so right now we're looking at uh, building a pilot, pilot plant and uh, raising, raising money to do that. And where will your pilot plant be? I'm sorry if I missed that. Oh, well, that's a good question. And in fact, we're looking at a number of different locations for a pilot plant. And, uh, you know, this is a, uh, and we are in talks with some corporate partners. I can't re really reveal that yet, but we do have a pilot plant site uh, picked out tentatively, and that's also a site where we would go all the way to a production plant. Mm -hmm. And how much acreage, you know, does a plant like this, in, let's just say this took off wildly because we definitely need to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Um, what's the size of a typical up and running, you know, plant that's producing feed and plastics and other things, um, if you have a typical okay. layout. So, so, so to, to describe, uh, you know, this is one of the, earlier on I, I, I was explaining our technology and saying, well, plants uh, use sunlight and they capture uh, carbon dioxide. And this is a great process, photosynthesis. We use hydrogen, and one of the advantages of using hydrogen is we can have a much higher density facility uh, for for capturing the hydrogen. So if we were to look at like a cement plant, you know, a representative cement plant, they produce uh, somewhere in excess of about a million tons of CO2 a year at, at your average cement plant. For us to build a plant to capture that million tons of CO2 would take around 8 to 12 acres of land. Uh, an equivalent uh if, if one were to use uh, photosynthesis to capture that same uh, CO2 coming out of that plant, it would take about 10 square miles. So it's a big difference in terms of the footprint of the plant, and that's one of the things that using hydrogen gets us. And it's also one of the reasons that you know a hybrid-type system where uh, you know solar, wind, uh, etc., are producing electrical power and converting that to hydrogen so we can capture the CO2. It makes a lot of sense because that's it's quite a, quite a big difference in land uh, utilization. So, you know, the short answer is a, a, a facility, production facility of ours that would produce 
you know, several billion dollars in uh, product value every year would be about 12 acres. Hey, let me ask you, uh, I think <laughs> I'm jumping in front of Rachel here, but since you're talking numbers, here's an important number that everybody in the world needs to know. <clears throat> the human race collectively is emitting, you know, around 35 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. And guess what? How many is that per person on the average? Well, hey, you divide by a little over 7 billion people. Well, that means that about 5 tons of carbon dioxide are going in the atmosphere for each and every one of us on the average. You know, Americans and Europeans emit a whole lot more. Bangladeshis and, you know, uh, Laotians emit a lot less per person per capita. But anyway, my bottom line here, question, how much can you guys ideally, in your wildest dreams, uh, how many years from now, whatever, get out of the atmosphere? Are we talking millions of tons a year, billions, B, as, as in boy, tons, uh, potentially? Potentially, certainly, we would, we would be talking billions of tons. In that's other words, that's music to my ears. <laughs> Say again, sorry, it's I very extensible. Yeah, very extensible, and if you look at, you know, there's a term that, that's used a lot these days called decoupling. Right, mm -hmm. and if you want to decouple uh, uh, liquid fuels, chemicals for making plastics, and you know some other types of products from petrochemicals and from pollution, you have to have another carbon source. Okay, and you know the, the, when we say you know the potential is billions of tons, I mean that that's what it takes to replace uh, fossil carbon. You you can't you can't have a system where you're not going to be continually net contributing more and more CO2 to the atmosphere every year unless you decouple from fossil carbon. And to do that, you have to have other sources uh, of these same products. And by the way, let me just say, look, look, folks, we get it. Uh, we have to do everything we can to also have better, cleaner energy systems, you know, using sun, wind, uh, wave power, even tidal power, even. But we also have to, we really do have to clean up our act. We have to get way more efficient, both technically and just in our lifestyles. You know, Americans throw away, you know, five times more energy than they need, uh, really. And, you know, everything from having decentralized energy production, you know, at the home and business level, instead of having power plants way out in the desert where we then lose 10% of the power in transmission, you know, all kinds of ways we've got to save a ton of... So, and, and also walking, bicycling, busing, all those healthy things, or, or driving electric vehicles that are where the electricity is coming from the sun, all those things, yeah, we've got to do, and we've got to do some massive changes in our lifestyle, and we will have programs on that stuff later. Those are the kind of spiritual revolution corner of things. But, but yes, okay, so meanwhile, we have what, uh, what uh, Merck and Brian are telling us about here. And this is the first time I am hearing about this in any depth. And this is, I think it's, it's a source of hope, you know? Um, so, okay, keep going. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I was just going oh, to yeah. say, you're listening to Planet Watch Radio. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan, and we're speaking with Merck Martinelli and Brian Sefton of Oak Bio, a company that is proposing to create food and plastics and fuel out of carbon with microbes uh, in a process that mimics uh, various other natural and processes. And 
just to respond real quickly and, and go back to you guys, um, there is a new article saying that Nordic countries are bringing about a complete energy transition worth copying. There's a new article in the Science Daily about this, which we will post on the Planet Watch Radio Facebook page. And I just want to interject that carbon that Rachel just mentioned. Again, it's carbon from the atmosphere. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be, I suppose, but we're kind of designing the process here to be carbon extracted from the atmosphere, which is key and very super important. I remember what I was going to ask last okay, time. Okay, good, good. <laughs> um, which has to do with the economies. I know you're doing private funding for this, and this may not be the best time to look for government funding for alternative fuels or other processes. However, there are um, potential economies of carbon you know, credits, and especially in California, we still have our own system. So does that play into any of your economic models where you hope that there'll be some sort of market for carbon sequestration or removal? Well, that's a great question, and so let me let me address that two ways. The first thing is, our process is a process that is driven by uh, basic business metrics. In other words, the value of the products we make exceeds the cost of making them, and the difference is profit. Okay, we don't require uh, a carbon tax, a carbon subsidy, or anything else. Uh, in order to be profitable, uh, and and that's that's an important part of our technology. Uh, it is great when there are carbon taxes, caps, uh, emission caps, all these kind of things. They do help us tremendously uh, in, in improving the the willingness of of particularly big companies to get involved in uh, you know taking steps to abate carbon release and and even to use technologies like ours. But really, when you, when you look at the money, uh, you know, that have been, that, you know, the dollars that have been proposed or used in, in various carbon taxes, they're not tremendously huge. They're sometimes, you know, somewhere between 15 and $40 a ton, hmm. which, you know, really, uh, you know, for us, is not, uh, it's not a significant amount of money. You know, when we make uh, out of a, ton of carbon, we can make about, about uh, you know, products that are worth between uh, 700 to over $1,000. That $30, you know, it's something, but it's not, um, it's not what our business is, is based on. Our business is based on the products we make, uh, you know, for example, the aquaculture feed is a substitute for fish meal, uh, is what it's targeted for. You know, this is worth uh, around a dollar and a half uh, per kilogram, and uh, you know, so that's that's quite a bit more than the carbon taxes. We have benefited from that, though. For example, we got a grant from the Climate Control and Emissions Corporation of Alberta, Canada, uh, which was paid for. That grant uh, funds came from uh, carbon taxes in Alberta. So. This this was a great use of carbon taxes was to to, to help our research, uh, it, but long term, you know, we look at CO two as a feedstock and approach this uh, carbon capture with the basic metrics of business. Great, and I think we have a few uh, right. call yeah. in, called in or written in. Sorry, written yeah. in questions. We got uh, a couple of emails here. Uh, let me just first say though, before I forget, that uh, at least one of our guests, I think Brian, with whom we've been speaking, is a Stanford guy, right? Uh, no, Berkeley. Sorry. Oh, is, yeah. is, Go Bears. Is there somebody on your staff who's from Stanford? 
Well, Hay- Hayward, who works with us, is not on this call. This is Stanford. Okay, so he's a Stanford yeah. guy. Okay, well, Stanford and Berkeley are both pretty well known as uh, <coughs> communist hotbeds. No, no, no. Uh, places places of excellence. You know, people actually know stuff who come out of these places. <laughs> now, I gotta, I'm going to get to the emails, but I have a burning question for you. I hear about microbes doing all this, and I'm thinking... God, are we going to release a plague of germs all over the world? Is this, you know, genetic engineering gone out of control? Um, please reassure me. Please they answered that. They answered that. This did. is natural selection. You okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Here, here are our emails. Uh, we got one, uh, well, <laughs> one from uh, Traffic Cop uh, saying, how can we get you to do your pilot plant in, I believe, the... It's going to be uh, Santa Cruz, <laughs> and let me and let me just tell you the other one. That was from my buddy uh, at day, the owner of Day One Solar, which is one of my favoriteest solar companies in Santa Cruz. By the way, DayOneSolar.com. Uh, the other question here is coming from way across on the eastern end of this country. Uh, would you use N-butanol to fuel camp stoves and regular stoves? Would you use it to fuel the arc furnaces that melt aluminum and metal to recycle it? <laughs> so there you go. Good questions. Uh, Thanks, guys. Yeah, That would be, you know, truthfully, N-butanol in terms of its value is a fairly, is a, a pretty, pretty valuable chemical and uh, worth quite a bit more than fuels people tend to burn for things like uh, you know, stoves and that kind of thing. Though it, it, it can be used for that, uh, certainly. It commands a much higher price, uh, really, for being made into acrylic. But as a fuel, it, the most, you know, the best use of N-butanol as a fuel is to power cars rather than, uh, you know, you could use it for stoves and that kind of thing, too. You probably wouldn't use it for uh, super high tension temperature furnaces which are uh you know better served by by other kind of very dense uh energy fuels fuel sources what about so, uh, i'm not jets? an expert on aluminum making but I, I do recall uh having visited a smelter once and uh mm-hmm. you know it's it's quite a high temperature process rachel just asked a really good question what about aviation fuels you know jets that's the toughest nut to crack in this whole Rockets. damn climate thing <laughs> Even well, ro- sure. well, yeah. yeah so sure you know, so aside from the fact that we make N-butanol, we can make other fuels, too. And N-butanol and a number of other uh, types of uh, chemicals we already make can be used for jet fuel. So that's, that's a good, uh, um, a good uh, question. And, in fact, N-butanol has been used as an aviation fuel. It uh, was used to uh, power the uh, British Spitfire in World War II. <laughs> And it's a, it's a very, very high-performance fuel, and it can be blended with other alcohols also to make a so-called uh, super fuel also. So, uh, you know, if you, if, if, if you think about all these fuels used in jets and cars and trucks and these kind of things, it really blends, usually, of a number of chemicals. Certainly, N-butanol is, is, is one of the uh, chemicals that could be in there, as well as a number of other chemicals that are, are you know, it, side products, too, of our 
production process, which can be mated to things like biodiesel and that kind of thing. Just another little quick feedback for you from the email front here. A couple of people are emailing. This is amazing stuff. This is exciting and encouraging. So, okay, keep on keeping on. We're <laughs> officially supposed to be done with your segment of the well, show right about now, but let's, let's one more going. question. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, um, you know, just look at what's ahead for you. What, where do you see um, your company and this technology being in, say, five years? Well, within five years, we hope to be uh, building a production plant, well on, well on the way to building a production plant. And, uh, you know, hopefully this technology will be adopted uh, on a very, very wide scale and, uh, you know, be part of, uh, as Joe was mentioning, part of the mix that, uh, you know, improves things overall, right? Not No one technology is going to solve our, our, our climate problems here on Earth. But, uh, you know, putting, putting the best technologies together in, a, in an overall effort uh, will. And we think this technology can be one of the really key important technologies for removing very, very large amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, doing its part. So, so this is where we hope to be. We hope, we hope to be uh, well on the way to uh, a commercial plant within yeah. five years. One, one last thing I will say to placate some of my peeps out there who think I am ignoring the need for better mass transit and much more widely used habitually mass transit. No, I mean, we don't, we're not just all about cars with the latest, greatest whiz-bang fuels. We're, we're into buses and trains and more better use of that, okay? And that can also be fueled within butanol, I imagine, or related fuels, right? I think it's all of the above. And I just Absolutely. want to thank you both for your contribution thank to you the so future. Much. And for come being over here. to Santa Cruz and see us, or we'll come over and see you, or both. <laughs> and I want to thank you, you for okay, being well, on Planet on, Watch. Uh, on uh, Highway 35. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, up on the summit. We'll have a summit right on, the summit. on the summit. I'm on the skyline. <laughs> great, great. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. Bye bye. Uh, all right. Thank you. Thanks all right. for bye -bye. being here. Bye now. We've been speaking with Mark Martinelli and Brian Sefton. They are principals at the company Oak Bio, which you can look up online. They are inventing fuels and, we never and feed. did and get the name. We never did get the ex explanation for the name Oak Bio. You'll just anyway, have to figure that out. Stay tuned. We'll, we'll get exactly. that. <laughs> this is Planet Watch. We have about 10 more minutes of the show. We want to thank you for tuning in. Wherever you are, we are expanding our network to include Ohio. We're very excited. And if you know people in your town, if you're streaming live that would like to get this on their local radio station, uh, write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail. Com. And go to the Green Radio Network in Ohio. Welcome, Ohio. We're so glad to have you on board. We're in very the Rust excited. Belt, by the way. I think they were sort of supposed to be a red state or something, but it's actually a purple state. They're all over the map. We'll have to rename them the uh, Buckeye yeah. State instead of the Rust Belt, I right. think. So we have a couple of tips from last week and a new one for you. Um, I just wanted to... <laughs> mentioned that um, we had the glass of water question that was a couple weeks ago. Every week we're going to try to give you a little bit of a science brain teaser you can impress your friends with at, uh, at I don't know, a party where they are talking about the sea levels can't possibly be rising because you know, ice melts and it doesn't raise the water, except if it's sliding off of land when mm -hmm. it's one of the ice exactly. shelves. So we, we figured mm -hmm. that one out. So what's for this week, Joe? And do you want to deal with the one from last week first? Yeah, the last week uh, I, I sort of 
answered it, but I want to know if any of you did your fun homework and tried to blow the little wad of paper that you stick right into the neck of a clear plastic bottle held sideways. Try to blow it into the bottle. Blow hard, blow smooth and sneaky. You can't do it. If you think you did, if you're going to claim you did, I mean, you're, you're, you're going to get a Nobel Prize. Send us a video of your successful accomplishment. Red, I don't think anyone anywhere, anytime will ever be able to do this. But hey, take up that challenge, <laughs> all right? What do um, you get if you win? And if you want the details and you didn't get what I just said, check out the archive from last week's show. All of our shows are now archived at zbsradio.com. Except the very first one, but I can send you the link to that. Um, okay, here's the next one. All right, here we go. This is another example, just like that last one, of the wonders of fluid dynamics. Light a candle. Take a candle, preferably kind of a big candle that makes a nice tall flame. And be in a calm area. Don't be out in the wind. Be inside a house with fairly stationary, gently percolating air. Put a flat, broad knife between you and the flame, like a butter knife, so that it, positioned so that the surface of the knife is perpendicular to the line of sight between your mouth and the candle flame. In other words, you're, you're looking at the broad face of the knife, not the edge. Now, blow gently, more blowing, <laughs> blow gently and steadily toward the candle flame. But I mean, you're actually blowing at the knife, which is between you and the candle flame. Is that a clear picture? What happens? That's the question. What happens? Now, I'm not going to tell you the answer, but I will tell you how to find out what happens. I mean, you might not see because, hey, the candle flame is on the other side of the presumably opaque knife from you. So get a friend to watch from the side, film it with your cell phone, <laughs> or hold up a mirror off to the side so you can sneakily glance to the side and see what's going on. It's pretty interesting, pretty fun, and it's a great thing to show kids or anybody. I've shown it to students for years, and it actually gets their attention for a couple of minutes before they go back to their cell phones or whatever. Um, okay, uh, let's see here. So uh, if you want, you can take a picture of yourself doing this and email it to us at Radio Planet oh, Watch. Yeah. We will post it on the Facebook page. Just take a still. So get, get somebody to take a still of... You can take of a video, the, take yeah, a short yeah, sure. video. We can, mm -hmm. we can upload those. Um, yeah, so that's a good trick. And, and also you can send us your videos of you trying to blow a piece of paper into mm -hmm. a plastic bottle and your friends will think you're nuts, which is okay. <laughs> Tell them it's all science. Um, Here's something you might be interested in. Here's your homework. There's a new movie called Climate Hustle. And the main narrator is a fellow named Mark Morano. He is a known... Uh, uh, he doesn't have any science degrees at all, but he's employed by the fossil fuel industry to cast doubt on climate science. Mm -hmm. And now they have a 78-minute movie. They're and it's promoting. new? Yeah. It's the same old, same it's old stuff he's been spewing out for Pretty much that years. they found these scientists to um, say that they've changed their mind and actually it's not mm -hmm. real. Um, so I don't know how much they paid them to be on the movie, <laughs> but maybe you could go and give us a report. I yeah, hate but to tell you speaking that of that's movies, your homework. Speaking of movies, <laughs> this just in, I just found out about this a couple of hours ago. New movie from uh, Al Gore. He was on Democracy Now! I think a few days ago. Amy Goodman's democracynow.org. Go there. One of the best sources of truth. Anyway, this movie is entitled An Inconvenient Sequel. S-E-Q-U-E-L. <laughs> -E and, you know, I remember after the first one, I thought, well, it's all great. It's about climate and everything. But he doesn't talk really about any solutions other than, you know, making your light bulbs more efficient. This one apparently actually deals with some serious solutions, lifestyle changes, everything. So check it out. I don't, I don't know what it is. I haven't seen it yet. I just learned about this. But check it out. 
an inconvenient sequel, you know, produced, I guess, by Al Gore and his folks. So that's great news. I can't wait. Yeah. I don't know how you get it. Check it out. If you know how to get it, especially for free, let us know, okay? Maybe we can give away tickets um, to right, that. Right, right, right. <laughs> and as part of our, our promotional aspect mm -hmm. here on Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com. That is our email. So um, I find it interesting that there's that movie and the, the Al Gore movie coming out at the same yeah, time, right. which brings us around to the post-fact world. And I wanted to mention one other interesting news story I forgot to say, and I will bring in... I just have to remember to do my one announcement at the very end. We've got yeah. time. Um, it's now uh, announced that scientists are planning a march on Washington. It cool. may, may be the first scientists march because they don't usually get that political but in these times where you know their twitter feeds are getting shut down and perhaps their research papers that they've worked all their lives on are being taken down off of government sites they're really feeling under attack and so they're going to be speaking out now and i believe it's happening in april and it's not limited to scientists anyone who actually wants to support science and the free uh, dissemination of information, especially taxpayer-funded information, um, should go and online and look up Science March on Washington. And Scientists Washington, D.C. is where yes. it is. It's I grew up in that area in Northern Virginia. It's beautiful in April, especially earlier April. The cherry blossoms are out then. And by the way, they are actually out now two weeks earlier every year than they were when I was a kid there. <laughs> There's something behind that that we can talk more about later. But it's a beautiful place at that time of year. So if you want, yeah, a cherry blossom trip plus making a statement about the future of the human race, you can go to Washington and support science. Uh, in April, we'll give you more information and maybe do a report from that. There's also a big climate conference coming up here at UC Santa Cruz, which we will be having some guests on in about two weeks that are appearing. Last there. weekend of February, mm -hmm. 24th, 25th, something like that. World-class stuff. Um, hey, uh, let me just do one word of the week. Uh, we haven't done this yet, but I love doing sort of getting to the origins of our commonly, you know, taken for granted phrases like percent, you know, parts per hundred, right? You've heard of parts per thousand, parts per million, parts per billion. Percent, well, hey, what's the French word for a hundred? It's son. It's pronounced son, which sounds like it's spelled S-A-H-N, but it's actually spelled, drum roll, C-E-N-T, son. Hey, well, a cent, a penny you know, a hundredth of a dollar. So it's part, it's per cent, per hundred, parts per hundred. And, you know, you think of centigrade temperature, centigrade, a hundred degrees between zero degrees C for freezing of water and a hundred degrees C for boiling of water. So there you go, centigrade. By the way, when you talk about, you know, 37 degrees C, that's also Celsius, which is somebody's name, probably a guy. Um, <laughs> haven't really ever looked up who, who that person is. But anyway, so that's kind of fun. I got a bunch more, but hey, we got a million of them. Later shows. Um, I do want to do a sky thing for you. Are we, are we okay to do a quick sky thing? Very quick. Yes. Yeah, yeah. One minute. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this will last if you miss it this Very week or, yeah. You know, but if you're an early bird, like super oh dark 30 dawn patrol or a night owl or both or, you know, a burn the candle at both ends kind of person, go out and look in the sky anytime after about 2, 3 a.m., which is called the wee hours. And why is it wee, by the way? It's because it's tiny numbers. It's, you know, 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Jupiter, 
the great planet Jupiter, which, by the way, is our the subject of our theme music before and after the show, uh, is this brilliant white blazing dot. Not quite as bright as Venus in the southwest evening sky, but it's really... And you just go out, and it's right next to the bright blue star Spica in Virgo, in the constellation Virgo. So it's a striking sight, just staring you right in the face in the eastern sky anytime after, you know, from 2 a.m. until dawn. So and check that out. And there you have it. There you have it. Planet Watch is... Brought to you by Joe Jordan and Rachel Ann Goodman. And thanks to our host, KSCO, today for the program. we got one more now. We look forward to seeing you uh, next week. We will have a special guest, 2BA, because we're still confirming her. But we're hoping to speak with a NASA scientist whose specialty is Mars and what it might have to do with our own planet. So thank you very 20, much for 20 watching. 20 more seconds. This, you have four days left if you're a local here to sign up for Rick Nolthenius' class at Cabrillo College on planetary science and climate change. Excellent course. Be there or be square. Uh, go, just Google Cabrillo Astronomy. Cabrillo Astronomy, you'll find out about it. I think they call the course Astro 7. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. This has been Planet Watch. Planet, so thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, keep an eye on the sky. <laughs>